that we've called Follow Me as we're walking our way uh, through the book of Mark. Uh, Last week, Peter uh, introduced us uh, to this book as we saw John the Baptist coming on the scene to announce uh, the coming of Jesus. Um, We saw the inauguration, if you will, of Jesus's ministry uh, through his baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness. And this morning, we're going to see the beginnings of his ministry, as Mark is going to tell it, um, in Galilee. And he's going to be, we're going to be in Galilee for quite some time as we move through uh, the book of Mark, as Jesus does uh, his uh, ministry there. Let's go ahead and read the text, Mark chapter 1 and starting at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the king and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, that's Peter, um, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us and teaches us about our Savior. Here in our text this morning, there's an incredible call that you had upon the disciples and a call that I think is in many ways extended to us. Pray you'd help us to hear that this morning as we hear your word, and that ultimately we would see Jesus, and that we would be drawn near to him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Many, most, maybe all of you have heard of family food, family, if I can get it out here, we'll see, Uh, family feud. Uh, Most of you have probably seen it before. And of course, on the show, you have two competing families, and what are they doing? There are these surveys that have been done where they've asked a hundred people a question, and and you're trying to guess what most of the people um, had said was the answer. And so, um, a few years back, the question was this, when someone mentions the king, to whom um, might he or she be referring? And we'll go backwards here, and we go through the list. Um, So out of a hundred, two people, um, this was the bottom answer of four, Uh, said Burger King. That's who they thought of when they thought of the king. There were three, three out of a hundred, who thought Martin Luther King Jr. Then there were seven people, this is the number two spot, only seven people, but seven people out of the hundred thought of Jesus or God as the king. And then, of course, 81 people out of the hundred thought that the king was Elvis. How sad it is that that is our response. Mark this morning, is going to try to convince us that someone else is the king, okay? He's going to try, I think, in our text, and actually throughout the, the book of Mark, to try to convince us that Jesus is the king. So, let's dive in. Verse 14, what do we see happening? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So, this is the beginning of his Galilean ministry, and what do we see from the very beginning, but opposition. Things don't start off easy. His ministry starts off with a cloud, in a sense, over it. 
a cloud of adversity from the very beginning of his ministry, and that's very telling um, as John is arrested or, or handed over uh, to the authorities, uh, the very thing that will, of course, happen to Jesus towards the end of Mark's gospel is happening now to John, and this flavors, if you will, his, his ministry. But, but what does Jesus come doing? He came into Galilee, what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. And we need to be reminded, what is that gospel? What, is, what does that mean? Of, Peter introduced it to us last week, and we heard some examples of what that word gospel means. It means good news, and um, Peter gave us some ideas of some types of good news. I want to give some more this morning. You know, there's all sorts of good news in our world, right? There can be good news, I got an A, right? That's good news. There can be good news, uh, we won the game, right? That's good news. Uh, there can be um, good news, I'm pregnant. Um, that's good news, but of a different order, right? If you hear a woman say that. Um, or it can be even really big news, like, like Peter spoke about last week, that ends up on the front of the newspaper, uh, like at the end of World War II, um, victory over Europe. You know, like that, that kind of good news. There's all sorts of good news out there. And we need to understand that when Mark is using this word, he's using this to mean good news of the highest order, okay? In fact, in, in his day, largely, this word would be reserved for very specific usage and often reserved to only speak of Caesar, to only speak of the king. It was, it was good news about the birth of a king, or good news about the coronation of a king. And just think, what did we just read about in Mark last week? And since the coronation, there it is, his, his baptism takes place. Or the victory of a king, which is where, of course, the gospel of Mark is going to lead us as Jesus goes all the way to the cross to show the greatest victory this world has ever known. And so Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God, not just any old good news, but he's proclaiming good news. The king has come. The king is here. The greatest king that this world has ever known, in fact, its creator, is here. And this has been good news that everyone had been waiting for. Certainly the Jewish people had been waiting for. And that's why we have the beginning of verse 15. What does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. He's saying, right now, in me, the time is fulfilled. The prophets, the Old Testament, had long been waiting, had long been hoping for the Messiah, right? The Messiah that was going to come. That had been the hope. The hope that starts at Genesis 3, where you have the promise that one day there's going to be a seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. The promise that, that goes on through the Old Testament, this hope, this longing for the one that is going to fix all that's wrong in the world, the Messiah. Or as we see in the New Testament, that same word Christ, the anointed one, the king. There was this long-awaited desire and longing for the king to come, the one that was promised to David. What was David promised? That one of his descendants would reign on the throne forever. Jeremiah 23, 5 puts it this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
and he shall reign as king. That is the hope. And Jesus is, is coming forth, and what is he saying? He says, the time is fulfilled right now. The king is before you. In fact, what does he go on to say? Verse 15, not just that the time is fulfilled, but and the kingdom, and the kingdom is at hand. It's, it's right here. Jesus speaks a lot about the kingdom here in the book of Mark, as we'll see, and, and a whole lot about it in the, in the gospel of Luke. Um, some hundred times, almost, speaking of this kingdom. He's, he's saying that God's kingdom, His rule, and His reign has come. The beginning of, if you will, heaven coming down to earth. A time when everything will be changed. It's that long hoped for time. Um, in the return of the king, the last of the Lord of the, the, the Rings novels, after the, after the ring has been destroyed, um, Sam, one of the hobbits, he wakes up and he sees Gandalf the wizard there and um, he thought that Gandalf was dead, so he's surprised, first of all, to see him. But then he asks a very penetrating question. After everything that had been gone through, after the, he'd seen the horror that had become of Middle-earth and how bad things had become. And he asks a question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a very penetrating question, isn't it? He was longing, is, are things ever going to get better? Is all of this evil going to ever be undone? And the longing and the hope that we see throughout the Old Testament, the, the hope is that, that the Messiah is going to be doing what? That's precisely what the Messiah is going to be bringing. He is coming to undo, if you will, all the evil, to make everything sad, to make everything sad um, come untrue. And so Jesus comes in as the king to make everything sad come untrue, but you and I, here we are today, and we must be thinking, well, okay, if this king has come and he's, he's bringing in his kingdom, why does it seem like things aren't that different today? Why is there still sorrow? Why is there still sadness? Why is there still suffering? And that is because what we need to understand, Jesus is he's inaugurating his kingdom, if you will. He's, he's bringing it in, but there is much more of it to come. To help us out here, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians says this about us. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Paul's saying this is true about us now because the king has come and he started making all, everything sad coming true, okay? But as you and I, as we reflect on that, we think, well, but okay, I kind of see it, but then at the same time, sometimes it just doesn't feel that way. It just doesn't seem to be our experience. That's where it's helpful to look at Romans 8, where Paul is also speaking, 8.19, he says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So even though the king has come, the creation itself is still waiting for more, but not just that, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay. We who've, who've already seen the ushering in of the kingdom, if you will, we who um, are a new creation, the first fruits of the kingdom, okay? Even we too, we do what, he says, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So Jesus comes and he's, 
beginning and inaugurating his kingdom. The great king is coming. The great king takes up his life here on the earth. His great king, our great king, accomplishes the most incredible victory this world has ever known. And of course, as we know, the king then ascends into heaven and he will come again, bringing his kingdom with all fullness. So on that last day, everything sad will indeed come untrue. And so as we read this gospel, we must be reminded in this gospel, the king is here and and because the king is there, the king brings with him demands, right? Just the very fact that he's a king, that he's the Lord, that demands what? All authority. He demands everything. And so what does that look like? Look at the end of verse 15. Jesus is saying that because the time is fulfilled, because the kingdom is at hand, because the king is here, you must what? Repent and believe in the gospel. You must have a change of heart, a a change of mind, a, a change of direction. And all of this change, this repentance, it's understand it's founded in the person of Jesus. It's in Him that this is taking place. He is the focus. So if Jesus is the King, what is the right response? It's to repent of the ways in which He is not the King of our lives. You know, if I'm honest, and I've used this illustration before, and um, it's not mine, so I don't claim it to be my own, but I'll use it anyway. Um, I, if I'm honest, I, I live my life as though it's the me movie. And the movie of my life, it's all about me. Um, I'm the star of my movie, okay? Um, there are a couple of co-stars. My wife, Adrian, she's one of the co-stars. And my, I guess my kids, maybe, and my dog, Annie. Um, but you've got to understand the movie is about me, okay? It's not about them. Um, you guys, sometimes, some of you, you know, kind of show up in the, in the background of the movie. Um, but you're not the star of the movie. Don't, you make sure you understand. Um, you may or your name may, well, probably won't make it into the credits, okay? Um, just being honest. Um, because the movie is not about you. It's about me. And if we're honest... I think in many ways that's the way that we live our lives. It's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about my glory. But Jesus is, 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 is coming into the picture here in Mark, and he's saying we must repent of the ways that we have set up ourselves as king. The movie isn't to be about us. It's not to be the me movie. It's to be the movie about him. We are but mere co-stars, if you will. Maybe we don't even get that high of a role. It's about him, not about us. Abraham Kuyper put it this way. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. There is no part of your or my me movie that Jesus does not cry, mine. He's the king. Mark wants us to understand that as he comes. And what does our response to this king look like? What does it look like for us to repent and believe? And I I think we see a bit of an example as we move on in Mark, as as we see his calling of the disciples. Now, just this week, 
my, um, my kids have all gone off to school. So, and my wife works at the school. So they all, you know, we get everybody up in the morning and everybody is gone together. And suddenly I'm at home alone with my dog. So we go for a nice little walk, Annie and me. Um, and then it's time for me to get to work. And since my office now is at home in my basement, which is working out good, um, she's got to be with me now, okay? She's with me all day long. You know, I'm not going to leave her upstairs in her crate. She's going to be down in the office with me, so I've set up a nice little area for her. And she has her toys to play with and things to chew on, so she can kind of mostly stay out of trouble, and mostly she just sleeps anyway, so it doesn't matter too much. Um, but the problem is this. My, my, my office is in the basement, and in order to get through it, you have to walk through the rest of the basement. And the rest of our basement is somewhat of a playroom, so there's always stuff all over the place. And for a five-month-old puppy, she just looks around, and there's all of these things to put in her mouth. She gets so excited. And in particular, she loves Nerf darts. She sees a Nerf dart, she's gone. It reminds me of the movie Up. You remember the dog Doug? You know, as he's talking to him, he's talking and have a conversation with him, and, and suddenly a squirrel goes by, squirrel! You know, that's Annie. As I'm trying to get her, you know, what do I want to train her to do? You know, because we're going down to my office, and then we'll come back upstairs for something, and I'm, she needs to go with me, and she needs to learn to go with me. So now I have to train her to follow me. And so what I started doing at the beginning of this week was, you know, okay, so I take a treat with me and try to train her. Okay, you need to follow me. And when you get to my office, you get a treat for following me. And then when we go back upstairs, you get a treat for following me and not jumping into all that other stuff, right? And it wasn't until Friday that I realized, hey, I'm preaching this sermon, and I'm teaching my dog to follow me. Um, and what is, what is Jesus doing here for the disciples? And I think for us, he's calling them and us to follow him, not get distracted by all those other things, those Nerf darts, and follow him. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and began following him. Do you notice there, even as I was just beginning, that somewhat of a surprising beginning Jesus has started off, you know, um, in verse 14 and 15, you know, he's ushering in this kingdom, repent and believe, and then where do we see him next? Where's he starting out? He's walking by the seashore to call some fishermen. It seems like a, not an incredibly grand way for the king to enter into all of history, right? You know, if I was writing the story, I would think of a I would think of much more pomp and circumstance and whatnot to, to usher in the king as he's coming into his ministry and... In a way, it's very helpful for us because it just reeks, if you will, of eyewitness testimony. Nobody would write it this way. It's this way because this is the way it happened and took place. And what does Jesus do? Verse 17. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men to call, call to follow him and become fishers of men, that, that call of following him, it's a, it's a call of, of discipleship. 
to the disciples to, to break all ties, to, to follow the master, to follow the king, and to give him their total allegiance. But that means denying themselves. That means doing things like leaving their nets behind and their dad behind to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer helpfully talks about this kind of discipleship this way and this kind of follow me, and he says this. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark, embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over ourselves to death, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. The call to follow is radical. The call to follow is to leave one's nets behind. And it's a call that also comes with a purpose then. He makes them fishers of men. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, usually that fishing analogy that Jesus is using here is actually an act of judgment. Um, people are fished whenever they're being judged in a sense. And, and Jesus turns that on its head. And what was this analogy, if you will, of judgment becomes one filled with grace as he uses it as, as those who, are, are, who you reach out to and you call into the kingdom and you call to Christ as you, you share the great king with them, as you share Jesus with them, as you go fishing, as it were, sharing the good news that the great king has come. And do you notice how radical in a way their following is? Look at verse 18. <laughs> For Peter and Andrew, what do they do? Immediately. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now immediately, this is part of the way, get used to it, this is part of the way Mark talks. Everything is immediate. Okay, everything moves very quickly. And their following happens very quickly. Immediately they just leave their nets. James and John, what do they do in verse 20? They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They leave their dad behind. They leave their career behind. Now, we need to understand at least a little bit of background because it almost sounds like this stranger is walking by the seashore and he just says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and they just jump on it without any sort of knowledge of who Jesus is. Um, I think we can take confidence they, they didn't know who Jesus was. Um, in fact, in John 1, we see that Andrew and Peter before this were actually tentative, if you will, followers of Jesus. They'd had interactions with him. But clearly, at some point, they, they'd gone back to fishing. Um, it's likely that at least John, but maybe James as well, were a part of that as well. Jesus was not completely foreign to them. But we shouldn't let that for a moment take away from the radical nature of what takes place here. Okay? Their obedience is still radical. They leave everything. Okay? It's total. And it's immediate. And to understand what they're leaving behind, they're not just poor fishermen. Okay? 
particularly James and John, did you see just the little bit of information they gave us about them? They left their dad behind with their hired servants. Okay, it's a family business, and they have multiple servants helping them fish. Okay, they must have had a pretty decent business going, and they leave it behind to follow Jesus. (laughs) Jesus' authority must have been very clear to them that he calls and they follow. In the midst of it, I hope you'll see how kind of in a way outrageous Jesus' call is to them and how radical their response is. And as we wonder, like, how, what, what in the world is going on here? The, the only answer could be that he really is the king, that he really does have the authority. And they sense that in him, much as we'll see next week when people just hear him teach He teaches like no other because it's the king. He teaches like one with authority. And whenever he says, follow me, he says it like one who truly has the authority because he's the great king. And Mark is, in a sense, leaving us to ask ourselves a question. Who is this man that men drop their nets and follow him? Now, you and I probably have pretty ready-made answers for that because most of us have been around the church long enough Many of you believers for a long time, and you know the immediate answer to why do they drop their nets? It's because it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. Well, has that belief made its way all of the way into your life? Have you, in a sense, dropped your nets? Have you left those things behind that entangle? Have you followed and chosen to follow the king, not the me movie, but his movie. And you see our calling, while different from the disciples for sure, because they were called to a very, very specific purpose, at the same time, the calling here is very, very similar to ours. We're called to the same thing. We're called to follow Jesus. We could pull out all sorts of texts. We're not going to do that right now. And we're called to fish. We're called to share that incredible good news that we know. So we're called to follow, and we think about that following, and we struggle. And we we hear about the disciples, and maybe we even think a little bit, well, I don't know that I could ever be that radical in following Jesus. I don't know that I could really just lay down my nets, my business, my whatever. Here's where we also need to understand. Mark is going to be telling us the incredible story of the king, okay? But in the shadow of that is the story of the disciples that we're going to see through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to see that while their following right now looks incredibly radical, and it is, they struggle, okay? There are times they're they're not able to grasp what's really going on and what Jesus is really doing and what he's really telling them. They they have fear. They struggle with faithlessness. They, They struggle with selfish ambition and thinking about themselves There's spiritual failure involved, and ultimately, what are they going to do? Ultimately, at the end of it all, they're going to abandon the king. So hopefully, as we move through the gospel of Mark, we'll be able to learn something of our own discipleship and how we are called to follow the great king, but we struggle, don't we? We struggle to do this. We we struggle to really submit to him fully. Why is that? And I think it's because sometimes we have the wrong objective. 
Um, back to Annie, my dog. I've been teaching her to follow me, right? This treat. You know, you follow me, what do you get? You get the treat. But there's something going on there. She doesn't follow me to my office to get me, right? She follows me to the office to get a treat. She then follows me back upstairs to get a treat. She's not following me for, for me. She's following me for what I'm going to give her, for the benefits of following me. And I think part of our struggle as we try to follow, sometimes our, our focus, our objective is the wrong thing. We, we focus on the benefits. We're too focused on the things that he's going to give us or things we think he should give us instead of focusing on him and our eyes being set on him. You know, there is no doubt we should be constantly and even every day thankful for the incredible benefits that come to us through Jesus, through the King, okay? We should be thanking Him for those things every day, but those things are not the end and of themselves. Those are the things that should point us to Jesus. Those are the things that should help us to set our love and our heart upon the great King, not upon the things that the King's going to give us, but on the person of the King Himself, the one who has come, the one who has died for us in our place that should point us to him and love for him, not just for the benefits and the things that we get from him. And so often we just come to him for the things that we can give. We should follow Jesus for Jesus' sake, not for the sake of the benefits. Our love should be on him. Now, this is so counter to us in our culture, isn't it? Because in our culture, it's all about me. It's all about what I'm going to get out of this relationship. Um, I'll be happy to be a part of this. I'll, I'll be happy to follow the king as long as he's lavishing his benefits upon me. But as soon as things get tough, I don't know. Because I'm not getting the benefits anymore. If he's not, if you will, scratching my itch, I don't know. That's how we live because it's all about the me movie. It's all about us and the benefits we might be able to get from him, and we need to understand. Following him, therefore, comes with a cost, the cost of denying ourselves, the cost of the focus moving from ourselves and, and what we want and what we think we need and to him and him alone. And when we begin to truly follow the king in this way, I think the fishing becomes natural, okay? The fishing becomes natural. And we've been talking as a church a lot about fishing, okay? We went through the book of Acts, and we saw over and over how we're, we're called to share our faith and to share the gospel. Um, we just had a class on it as a church about how to share the gospel about fishing. But ultimately, that fishing comes whenever Jesus has taken up his right place in our lives as the king and that we love the king for who he is. We love the king. Not just the benefits. We can be thankful for those, and we should be, and constantly. But our focus should be on him. So this morning, hopefully as we've seen, the great king is before us. The great king has come down to earth. 
And he's come down to earth to do that which you and I are incapable of doing. He lived a life that was flawless, in whom no one could find any fault. And then he, he went to the cross and died a death for something he never did, but for something that we did. He died for, the, for all that we've done, paid the penalty in our place. And of course, on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and showing his power as the great king over it and his authority over it to vanquish it forever so that even now we can see that we are new creations, that the old is gone, that the new has come, and he's gone on and he's ascended into heaven and he is seated on his throne right now, waiting that day when the great king will come to, in a sense, finish that work of bringing his kingdom down to earth. That day when, behold, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of the king is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That day when that object for the, the, the one whom, whom our focus should be on, Jesus, the king, We'll be able to be with him and in his immediate presence for all of eternity. You see, the great king has already started doing the work and he will finish it. He will make everything sad come untrue. He's already started the work and the king will finish the work. Now, a question before us this morning. How do you, how do I, how are we going to respond to the great king who's before us and calls to us and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Father, we hear this incredible call upon us this morning, a call that we, many of us, we, we want to follow and yet have struggled to. We want to follow you. We want to become fishers of men, but we struggle. We struggle with making this life all about ourselves and not about Jesus and not about our King not about the one who has saved our souls. Would you help us, even as we go through this week, to displace, would you be at work in our heart, Holy Spirit, to displace ourselves from the throne, putting Jesus in his appropriate place, that we would die, in a sense, more and more to ourselves, even this week and live more and more to our great Savior, Jesus Christ, the great King. Would you do your work on us, we pray, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ.